Well, good morning. It's great to be here this morning and uh, worship together. This is that day where you don't know whether to wear shorts, Butch Peterson, or a sweater, Kevin Harlan. So, uh, I mean, I could have, I guess, gone either way, right? Which season is it? We don't know, do we? Um, Never really mowed before snow, so this is the first time that's ever happened, so... Well, it's uh, great to be teaching here this morning in Brookside. Uh, For those of you that I've not had a chance to meet yet, my name's Kevin Harlan, and I uh, serve on the pastoral team at Christ Community. Uh, My wife Sharon and I actually began attending Christ Community in 1993 when we moved here to Kansas City. Hard to believe it's 20 years. Uh, Our kids have grown up here, basically. Uh, I joined the pastoral staff in 2002, so we were part of Christ Community for nine years prior to well, I guess I'm still part of Christ Community. Uh, I was part of Christ Community as a congregation member before joining the staff in 2002. I primarily teach and attend the Leewood campus, but my main role within uh, Christ Community is to work with our campus pastors around the city and to encourage them in the work that God has called them to. Uh, and it's always a great treat for me to be here in Brookside, to be with uh, John and Claire and Bill and uh, get a chance to spend time here in Brookside and, and to get a chance to worship with you on Sunday morning. It's not as frequent as I, as I would like it to be, but just know that I pray for you often and think of you regularly and, uh, and, and I'm thankful for the work that God has begun here uh, at the Brookside campus. As I mentioned, Sharon and I have two boys, uh, two sons. They both um, are married, employed, which is a good thing, by the way, and living in Tulsa. Uh, In in order to help me as I age, they were both kind enough to marry a girl named Megan, which is, uh, so I just have one name to remember. Uh, Our our youngest, actually, his wife's name uh, is Megan, but she goes by Maggie, so we didn't have to give one of them a nickname, which which I'm thankful for. That would have been awkward, too. our oldest son, Justin, works for an organization you may be fam- familiar with uh, called Teach for America, uh, he, an organization that's committed to ensuring that kids um, growing up in poverty get an excellent education. Uh, his wife, Megan, spent the last two years uh, teaching er- in early education in a Title I school in Tulsa. Our uh, youngest son's daughter, Maggie, uh, she is a Teach for America alum and has just begun work working in a brand new charter school in Tulsa in a severely under-resourced area of Tulsa. And our youngest son, Caleb, teaches in a leper colony just outside of Tulsa. No, that's a joke, by the way. I don't know if, I don't know actually if you should, uh, you know, use lepers in a joke, but I thought it was odd enough that you might go with me on that one. Uh, I couldn't pass that up. Actually, uh, Caleb works in the technology industry in Tulsa. Um, But as you'll see and find out this morning, I do have, and some of you already know, I have a rather twisted sense of humor. And as I was writing that about my kids and preparing for the sermon, it it came back to me this quote from David Brooks. I don't know if you know David Brooks. David's a columnist with the New York Times, one of my favorite writers. I just absolutely love reading him. And uh, David, in one of his books, uh, told this story about a conversation that he had with the president, the then president of George Washington University. And they were talking about the, the stress, the, the painful process of applying for college and all the hoops that kids have to jump through. And the president of George Washington University told David, he said, I don't know where these kids find lepers, but they find them and they read to them. <laughs> Isn't that great? I, I love, I just, you'll chuckle over that later. I, I promise me you will. Um, now, I know what you might be thinking right now. You're thinking to yourself, 
I didn't know that Nehemiah had anything to do with lepers. Um, well, uh, it doesn't. So there's a good question in there. What, where is he going with this? And I'm not really sure. It just, I thought it'd be funny, to be honest with you. But back to my kids. One of the things I'm most proud of as a dad, and I think you'll see a connection here, is that my kids, including my new kids, uh, my new kids by marriage, are increasingly aware of the needs of the vulnerable in their community and are working to try to meet them, to, to serve them, to care for them. And this morning, as we continue our look in the book of Nehemiah, this amazing story of restoration in the book of Nehemiah, I believe that we will see that God that godly restoration always cares for the vulnerable. That godly restoration always cares for the vulnerable. If you were with us a few weeks when we hosted the conference here at the Brookside campus uh, called CG 2013, you might remember Andy Crouch saying something similar to this. He actually said that the common good is advanced when even the vulnerable in the community are flourishing. That the common good is advanced when even the vulnerable among us in the community are flourishing. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning and want to follow along with me as we um, look at Nehemiah, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5, as Jael read for us this morning. And by the way, if you have a paper version of the Bible and you're going to try to find it, let me just go ahead and suggest that you find the table of contents. Uh, Nehemiah is not one that you can easily pretend to know where it is and flip through and find. So uh, go to Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah chapter 5. Now chances are, You're here this morning, you've come to church, you're familiar with the story of Nehemiah, or at least somewhat familiar with Nehemiah. And if I were to ask you to summarize the book of Nehemiah, the story of Nehemiah, it might sound something like this. Nehemiah worked for King Artaxerxes. Okay, maybe you wouldn't have said Artaxerxes, but I just like saying that name. So he worked for King Artaxerxes. He realized that his hometown, Jerusalem, was in ruin. He was actually told this by his brother and, and He appealed to Artaxerxes and asked if he could go and restore his city and begin rebuilding the wall. He went to this place. God's people rallied around him. Everyone played their part. And yes, he faced opposition. There were people who didn't like the idea of this wall being rebuilt. And and so they actually had to post guards to guard while the work was being done to prevent oncoming attacks. And the wall was completed in an amazing 52 days. Okay, does that sound about right? I mean, that's the story of Nehemiah. We would know this. I actually this week looked at several children's books, and that's pretty much the summation of Nehemiah that you read to your children. Well, if you've been reading along with our daily Bible reading plan, we call Open Here, which by the way, it's never too late to jump in with us. Uh, If you've been reading along with us, you know you read Nehemiah this week, and you might know that there's a little bit of that story in the summary that I left out. It's a story of impending civil unrest. It's a story that actually causes the work on the wall to be stopped. For how long, we don't really know for sure, but the the work on the wall actually halts. And yet this story in Nehemiah chapter 5 is often overlooked. But today we're not going to overlook it. So let's read it again together. Beginning in verse 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. 
There were also those who were said, we are mortgaging our, fin- vi- our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children, yet we're forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it's not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Okay, so what's going on here? I don't know if you're like me, but there are times when I read Scripture that I just wish they could have written it down a little clearer. Anybody with me on that? I mean, what's really going on here? Can anybody, I mean, pick this out? Students, do you ever feel that way as you're reading this Bible? It's like, why couldn't it just be a little bit plainer? Well, this past week, I, I read The Great Gatsby. Yes, I probably read it in high school, But when I saw the movie trailer, it's coming out this week, the movie's coming out this week, I hate to see a movie when there's a book about it. I I would rather read the book first. And so I saw the trailer and remembered absolutely nothing about the story. Which, by the way, students, proves the fact that reading the Cliff Notes or the Spark Notes is not the same as reading the book. So, (laughs) or it proves that I'm very old and high school was a long time ago and I just don't remember. I don't know which it is, but... Well, as I began reading The Great Gatsby and F. Scott Fitzgerald's writing, I must admit that it took me a while to settle into his writing style. Anybody have an author like that where it's just sort of different than the other books that you read? I wanted it to be easier to read. I was on vacation. I didn't want to have to work at this. But the more I read and the more I went back to reread, the more I enjoyed the beauty of his writing and the hidden layers that were underneath. The Bible is often like this for me. At first, I find myself saying, what? I mean, what does this mean? But after digging in, I'm so thankful that my initial wishes of simplicity and clarity weren't granted. Nehemiah 5 is one of those places So let's dig just a little bit to try to understand more of what is happening. I think if we were to summarize these first five verses that we just read, I I would summarize it this way, that Nehemiah listens carefully. Now to fully understand the significance of Nehemiah listening to these people coming to him, I think we just have to step back a moment from the story and remember what's going on. Nehemiah is in in the middle of a project that he's passionate about. A project that he's been called by God to do. A project that he's hurrying to finish. A project where the workers are actually being threatened by outside forces, so much so that they've had to post guards to protect them. And yet, Nehemiah takes time to listen. I have a hard time listening when I'm reading the newspaper. That was supposed to be funny, by the way. No, seriously, we should not miss the fact that these complaints, and by the way, I will have to explain several of my jokes along the way, so (laughs) I hope you're okay with that. Um, Nehemiah heard their outcry. This is really important for us not to miss. I mean, he didn't say, uh, excuse me, but don't you know we've got a big project going on here? 
And it's kind of important, and it's going to just, we're, we're kind of wrapping it up. We're on the tail end. Could you check back with me in a few weeks? No, he listens carefully. So what is their outcry? The, the book of Nehemiah is a story of restoration. A story of restoration that is grounded in the use and abuse of power. In the early pages of the story, we learn of Nehemiah's unique position that he's been placed in, this position of influence, and how he utilized this position of influence to begin the work of restoration, to bring hope and renewal to God's people. But as we know and feel oh so often, power is often abused because of the brokenness of the world we live in. And when this happens, the powerless and the vulnerable suffer. This is exactly the substance of this outcry that we read in these first five verses of Nehemiah 5, the abuse of power. The vulnerable in the family of God are being abused and mistreated by those in power within the family of God. And they come to plead for Nehemiah's help. This is not an outside threat that we see in earlier chapters. This is a threat from within. When you look at all the conditions that are going on here, it's pretty easy to understand that this might be a perfect storm for the vulnerable. Verse 3 tells us that there's a famine. Verse 4 tells us it speaks of this burden of high taxes that the people are facing. And to top it all off, we know in the story that Nehemiah has required the men to be present on the wall 24-7 and are not allowed to leave until the work is finished, which might have caused significant stress on those that were living paycheck to paycheck. And in the first five verses of this fifth chapter, we see this perfect storm affecting three groups of people. By the way, you'll see these three groups of people uh, and, and recognize them by a phrase that Nehemiah uses to signal that it's a different group. He says that there were those who said, and it's at the, it starts verse 2, verse 3, and verse 4. There were those who said. Do you see it there? There were those who said, and there were those who said, and also there were those who said. In verse 2, we see a group of people who are having trouble getting grain. This is most likely the laboring class. They're now working on the wall and losing their daily wages. You couple this together with the famine, and and the bottom line is they're having trouble eating. And to reach out and, and make their plea to Nehemiah, they said, could you just remember even our children? Just do it for our children. Verse 3 tells us about a different group of people, a group of people that are landowners. They would have been the largest majority of the culture, by the way, single family farms. A group of people who were literally just one bad harvest away from financial crisis. And this perfect storm has caused them to place their land up as collateral. And what we would know as the note being called The creditors have come in and have taken the land away from them, their very source of income. Now, verse 4 speaks of a different group of people. These are landowners who have been hit hard by the taxes that are being placed upon them, and they've been forced to borrow money from the Israelites within the family of God. 
who it seems to us are taking advantage of their vulnerability, of their financial pain. And when we come to verse 5, we experience a painful truth that I must admit I have trouble getting my head around. The solution to this deep hole of debt for many of these families is that they would sell their children into slavery with the plan to redeem them once they gain financial stability. And by the way, just to be clear, this is not a step Dave Ramsey recommends. Okay, just, I just want to be clear with that. But this is the reference in verse 5 if we see this. It says, forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And just to make it worse, in verse 5 you might see a word that's translated enslaved, and it's specifically referring to the daughters. This word in other places of the scriptures carries a sexual reference. And this was all being done within the family of God. Now, one of the questions here is whether these loans were illegal. And as I've studied the scripture this week, it does not appear to me that these loans or the debt slavery was illegal of what's happening here. Yes, there were laws within the family of God to protect the very poorest of poor, but I'm uncertain and I think more convinced that these three groups of people don't fit that category. That's why I think when we see Nehemiah's response, we must keep in mind that it's very possible that no laws were broken. So look with me at verse 6. Nehemiah responds, he says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and I said to them, And by the way, this next statement right here, I want you to look at the end of it. There's an exclamation point. This is as strong of language as you can get. We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? And just like this, they were silent and could not find a word to say. And so he continues... The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their field, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. And then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests, and I made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment, and I said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Now, here's the Cliff Notes version of these eight verses. Nehemiah stops the injustice. And it's at this point that I realize that my version of the Bible would be very short and boring, by the way. 
Nehemiah has heard their cry. He's angry. And he stops the work of the wall to deal with it. Now, think about the significance of this for a moment. I mean, they're working 24-7. Earlier in the story, we know they're faced with this outside threat. And basically, Nehemiah just tells them to suck it up, and they come up with a plan to guard them while they keep working. But when this news comes, when this news comes, the project is halted, and a meeting is called. The care of the vulnerable is a project-stopping priority. So he calls together the powerful leaders in the community, leaders who are either directly serving as creditors to those who are crying out, or indirectly were encouraging or allowing this to happen. And using today's language, Nehemiah lets them have it. And where Nehemiah begins his argument tells us that this is not primarily a legal matter from Nehemiah's vantage point. For him, it's primarily a moral issue. He begins by using irony, actually, in his case. He says, don't you remember that we too were once slaves? And now you're enslaving your own brothers? Exclamation point. Now, if you remember, the Jews had been released from slavery by King Cyrus in 537 B.C. And in the story now, we're at 445 B.C., 92 years later. And before you too quickly say, oh, well, no wonder they forgot. Let's compare this. 2012, one of the best films of 2012 was the movie Lincoln, which chronicled the work of Abraham Lincoln and the passage of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, outlawing slavery in our country. That was 148 years ago. For the Jewish people, it had been 92 years. How could they have forgotten? They are now owning slaves. And just in case they weren't compelled by this reminder that they once were slaves, Nehemiah drops the hammer on him. He says, you should live as if you fear God. Nehemiah is wanting to make it clear that this is not a matter of legal judgment, but there will be a judge. And they are living either as if God doesn't exist God doesn't see what they are doing or just doesn't really care. You see, God has given his people a clear warning against the abuse of power against the vulnerable, against the poor among them. And Nehemiah wants them to remember and be afraid. There's a surprise twist that comes into the story, actually, in verse 10. As it seems as if Nehemiah is actually implicating himself as part of the problem. Do you see what he says? He says, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Now, we can try to explain this away as just persuasive language. He's sort of like saying, you know, I'm one of you. I'm kind of guilty too. But I think much more is going on here. You see, Nehemiah belonged to a wealthy family in Judah, a family that owned land and was 
well protected against the famine that they were experiencing. He's risen to a position of power and influence. He's used his influence for much good. But still, at this moment, Nehemiah realizes that he too is part of a systemic problem that needs addressing. It could be that Nehemiah had done wrong, that he had lended incorrectly, or it might be that simply that as a leader, he's just failed to stop the wrong. But either way, Nehemiah goes on to say, let us abandon the practice of exacting interest. And he seems to be letting them and us know that there is a much higher standard to be expected of God's people, especially as we interact amongst God's family. Verse 12 makes it clear that the creditors understood exactly what they were doing and what was expected of them. And they quickly and publicly agree to do what is being asked of them. We will do as you say. And all the assembly said, amen and praise the Lord. By the way, this is a preacher's dream right here. Repentance, reconciliation, restoration, other words that start with R that I can't think of right now. Uh, I mean, this is the preacher's dream. And yes, we'll do it. In the remaining six verses of these, this chapter, which I encourage you to read sometime this week if you've not read it in the past week, we'll also see that Nehemiah doesn't just stop the injustice. He also wants to make it very clear to us and to them that he is a person who gives generously. He was governor for 12 years. And during those 12 years, he, he says that he frequently gathered crowds for meals, never charged them, Never, in our language, he never turned in an expense report, even though he was entitled to it. And this wasn't the occasional lunch out at Chipotle, by the way. This is big gatherings. It says 150 people with lavish food, meat, and wine detailed for us here in these six verses. Why did he do this? What fueled his generosity? Well, in verse 15, I think we find the answer. Nehemiah gave generously because he did not want to place a burden on God's people. And he didn't want to place this burden, this heavy burden on them for one main reason, and that is that Nehemiah feared God. He was seeking to live before an audience of one. Nehemiah understood that the care for the weak, the powerless, the vulnerable was near to the heart of God. And that he should live in a way that not only stopped injustice, but created justice. In verse 19, we get a vivid picture of Nehemiah living before this audience of one, where he sort of shifts from being a chronicler of history to a prayer to God, where he says, remember for my good, O God, all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah recognizes that ultimately, his only hope and our only hope is found in God. Now, I don't think we have to search too hard to find ways that this story connects to us today. In many ways, we have been placed smack dab in the middle of a community of nobles, officials, and the vulnerable. We don't have to look very far to see both the good use of power 
and the abuse of it. When Andy Crouch was here a few weeks ago, our pastoral staff spent an afternoon with him talking about his upcoming new book to be released in November. It's entitled Plain God, and it tackles this important topic of power and the proper stewardship of it. In a conversation with Andy, he gave us a helpful framework to think through power. First, he said that many focus on the prosperity gospel. This is grounded in the idea that power and success and wealth is good, and you should try to grab all of it you can, and God gives, gives it to you, and you should get it, and that's the way you should live, the prosperity gospel. He said in a reaction to this, many within the Christian community have started to live out the poverty gospel. And the poverty gospel is grounded in the idea that power, success, and wealth is inherently bad. And it is dangerous, and you should avoid it and stay away from it in all its entanglements. But Andy put forth a third way. And he calls it the posterity gospel, the thinking of the future gospel which holds to the idea that we have all been given power, success, and wealth in different measures, and we are all responsible to steward according to God's design. This is what I think Nehemiah teaches us. So before we depart this morning, let me just give us four simple lessons that I think this Nehemiah chapter 5 teaches us. First, I believe that Nehemiah would want to tell us and is telling us to fear God. Now, this is not the type of fear that leads to dread or to terror. This is the type of fear that often gets translated in the Bible as reverence. And if we're honest with ourselves, our 2013 Christian culture is great at communicating that God is love And God is our friend, both of which are true. But God is God, and we are not. And I don't know about you, but I need to be regularly reminded that he is all-powerful and not just another buddy that I can enjoy hanging out with. The wise Solomon said it this way, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Secondly, I think that Nehemiah would want to tell us to be just. Church, do we hear the cries of injustice? Or is our project so important that we don't have time to stop and listen? And I have to admit, I didn't like typing those words, and I don't like saying them. I would much prefer to live in what I would call my my restoration project bubble and stay oblivious to the needs of the vulnerable and the powerless. And I need to be regularly reminded that godly restoration always cares for the vulnerable. When was the last time you were angry at injustice? What does our lack of anger 
tell us. If you find yourself stuck in your own project bubble, let me encourage you a simple action step that you can do today to learn more about the cries of the vulnerable in our city. On our website, you'll find a button on the very front page. It says serve. And under that button, there's, you can see our partners. Click on that. Learn about our partners in the city who are engaged in serving the powerless and the vulnerable. Read their websites. Go and visit them. Learn about their work. Or also on our website, you can search for CG 2013. If you were not able to be here with us at the conference, we have audio up from the conference, including many breakout sessions led by people in the city who are serving the needs of the vulnerable in Kansas City. You can hear their cries. You can hear what's needed. Take time to listen. Third, I think that Nehemiah would want to encourage us to give generously. If you step back and really think about this, generosity is the antidote to the abuse of power. Let me say this again. Generosity is the antidote to the abuse of power. And as we'll see next week, this generosity begins first and foremost with the house of God or the local church. Collectively, as a family, we are to be about the work of caring for the powerless and the vulnerable. This is one of the things that I have loved about Christ Community from the very beginning, the 20 years that I've been a congregation member. Christ Community truly believes that we are designed as people, both individually and collectively, to give ourselves away for the good of others. The gospel calls us to a life above and beyond. This is why we often hear Jesus say, you have heard it said, but this is what I say to you. And he raises the bar of expectation of what he wants and desires from God's people. The Christian life is an outpouring life. It's a generous life. And finally, as we close, I believe that Nehemiah would want each of us to remember our slavery. Do we take time to Reflect and remember the truth that we too were once in slavery and oppression. Dear friends, let me just suggest to each of you this morning that I believe our heart for restoration, for the restoration of the vulnerable, is directly connected to the extent to which we believe we have been rescued and restored. If we in any way have crafted a gospel that centers our rescue in a religion of self-reliance or self-help or right living, then we have little hope for truly caring for the vulnerable. We must begin by remembering and truly believing that we too have been rescued and did nothing to deserve it or to accomplish it. This is the heart of the gospel. And it's only when we encounter this gospel that we have any hope for caring for the powerless and the vulnerable as God intended. Without remembering our own slavery and rescue, our care for the vulnerable just becomes another project in our religion of self-reliance. Over the centuries, One of the ways God's people have remembered their own slavery 
is through what we know as communion. We share communion together most weeks here at the Brookside campus as a tangible reminder of the good news that we too have been rescued and restored by Jesus' work on the cross. In the communion, in communion, the gospel is declared to our senses who taste and touch and smell, and we get to experience this good news of restoration in a tangible way. In just a moment, we will do this together as a family. Now, let me just give a few instructions. You don't have to be a member of Christ's community to participate, to participate this morning in communion. All followers of Jesus who have placed their trust in him are welcome at the table. Of course, if you would rather, you're always welcome to remain in your seat and use this time to pray and to reflect. When you come, there's four stations around the room, two in the front, two in the back. The one in the back, by by the way, back there is gluten-free in that corner back there. You can come up in groups of four to six, take the bread, dip it in the juice, and then partake together as a group. As a community, we are reminding ourselves and saying to one another that, yes, I too have been rescued. When you go to the communion station, if you would, please come exit through the side aisles and return to your seat through the center. And also, if you're new here with us, we know that it's hard to get around in these pews and you sort of bump over one another. We're a family this morning, so it's okay to touch someone as you walk past them. And as you come, please take your time. Don't feel rushed. Let's take time to reflect and remember. Let's pray together before we come. Lord, we pause in this moment as your family to remember our own slavery and oppression, the bondage that we were once in, and to remember the way that you rescued us from this oppression when we didn't deserve it and could do nothing to accomplish it. And yet, Lord, we are still free. As we come together this morning to remember and reflect on the goodness of your grace, Lord, forgive us for the ways we neglect the cries of the vulnerable. We long to be a people, both individually and collectively, who live as you designed us to live. We pray all of this in the name of our Redeemer and Restorer, Jesus Christ. Amen.